The Thirteenth Guardian, Chapter 3, Washington, D.C., August 8th, 5.20 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. After the meeting with the Speaker of the House and his senior staff, Remy was able to get himself on the working team tasked with putting together the final touches on the FEMA emergency bill. Their top priority was to present a finalized bill to the Senate and the House, who would vote on it and ultimately put it on the President's desk to officially pass into law. The Speaker of the House cleared everything off his schedule, and Remy was thrilled to be one of three staffers assigned to work around the clock to tie all the loose ends and begin the process of getting buy-in from various congressmen and senators on both sides of the aisle. They had to ensure the bill passed quickly in both houses. The target was to get everything complete and ready for a vote in five days. Both houses were called back from recess at the urging of the president so they could vote on the bill. After working for 36 hours straight, Remy had finally reached his breaking point and asked to take a couple of hours to go home and freshen up. At the early hour, there was little traffic on Washington, D.C. roadways, and Remy was able to drive across town in 15 minutes. His all-electric Tesla hummed quietly as Remy accelerated west on K Street, timing his speed perfectly to catch all the green lights. As he steered onto M Street, he engaged the self-driving feature on his Tesla. He let his focus wander away from the road for a few minutes, as the car's 12 sensors, cameras, and powerful onboard computer took on the task of navigating the last half-mile to his Georgetown apartment. He pulled into the building at 5.45 a.m. The elderly doorman in Remy's building poked fun at him. "'Haven't seen you in two nights, new girlfriend!' Remy managed to force a smile as he walked to the elevator. "'No, Steve-o, my job is my new girlfriend. My old girlfriend is waiting for me upstairs.' Steve-o let out a chuckle. A quarterback stud like you should be single and ready to mingle. D.C. has some hotties, my friend. Don't work too hard and miss out on what this city has to offer. Remy made his way to the elevator. Steve-O went back to reading the early morning delivery of the Washington Post. He snickered to himself. It's true what they say. Youth is wasted on the young. Remy's plan was to take a shower, lie down for an hour, and then head right back to the hill. He walked into the apartment as quickly as he could. He did not want to wake up his girlfriend, Nikki. She had recently been pulled onto a new client team at her job with the hottest digital marketing agency in Washington, D.C. She had been working past midnight every night. Her client, a large retail company from New York, was launching a national influencer and celebrity marketing campaign in a few days. Nikki was a minor celebrity in her own right. She and Remy went to college together at Yale. During her four years as a student, she spent most of her free time commuting to and from New York City for fashion photo shoots on Park Avenue and in Soho. She had millions of social media followers who loved her distinct fashion sense and her stunning looks. By her sophomore year, she had been approached by several large retail brands interested in partnering with her to promote their products. For each of her sponsored posts on social media, the brands paid her tens of thousands of dollars. By her senior year at Yale, she was making more money than most of her professors. She enjoyed what she was doing so much that she decided to take a job at a marketing and public relations agency that would allow her to continue to play in the fashion space, and she fit right in with that crowd. In many people's eyes, 
Remy and Nikki were the perfect couple. Nikki was beautiful and fiercely fashionable. Remy was the dashing quarterback and an incredibly smart California boy who someday would most likely run for Congress or Senate. He had that X factor about him. Rash charisma, powerful, physical build, smarts, and great educational pedigree. As he tiptoed his way into the apartment, Nikki stirred awake. Hey, you, she called out sleepily. I've been waiting for you. I made dinner last night. Thanks, love. Sorry I had to do another round the clock at the office. Remy pulled off his suit and hung it delicately in the closet. They have us cranking out a new bill that the president is waiting for, so the speaker is riding us pretty hard. The good news is that I'm spending a lot of time with the powers that be, and they seem to like me. So at least I have that going. What about you? Are you guys ready to get all the celebs singing to your tune? It's amazing how my client is willing to pay to have two of the biggest names in the music industry endorse their new clothing line. I need to start writing music, babe. We could make some serious money. Remy jumped on the bed and wrapped himself around Nicky's curvy body. The stress that had been pent up in his body over the last two days immediately melted away as her scent enveloped him. He playfully dreamed aloud. I like that idea. You can be the lead singer, good looks and all, and I'll hang in the back and drop some sick dance moves. He lifted his right arm and motioned a break dance wave. You know you can't dance to save your life, Nicky teased. I agree. It's, it's not my greatest asset. His thought trailed off mid-sentence as exhaustion finally got the better of him. Remy was woken up by a loud ring of both his home phone and his cell. Completely disoriented, he looked at the clock and shot up in bed, realizing that he had been asleep for four hours. Remy looked around the room to see if Nikki was still home, but she had left a couple of hours earlier, quietly slipping out of the apartment to let him sleep in. While he had been reluctant to get a home phone because he knew he would never use it, his parents had insisted that he keep a landline in case of anything. He never told any of his co-workers that he had one, so he was surprised to hear it ring. He opted to pick up the cell phone first. "'Remy, where have you been?' The voice on the other end of the line was frantic. "'We've been trying to reach you for the last half hour.' It was one of his colleagues that had been working on the emergency bill with him. "'Sorry, Brooke. I planned to take a shower and lay down and rest for thirty minutes before I came right back in. I must have been completely exhausted. I'm getting up. I'll be in the office in an hour or so.' No, you'll be here sooner. There's a car downstairs waiting for you right now. You have five minutes to get ready. Something must be going on because we now have to get this bill ready by 6 p.m. tonight. The House and Senate vote on it at 8 p.m. Giddy up, cowboy. Get your behind in here pronto. <laughs> no way that's possible. The Senate and House never vote that quickly, one after the other. Besides, there are a few legislative tweaks we still have to work through. Well, 6 p.m. tonight is the bogey. They'll vote on it whatever form it's in. Get off the phone and get in that car. Remy threw on the first set of clothes he could find, splashed some water on his face, and ran downstairs. Looking dapper as usual, amigo. The ladies are going to love that runway look. Steve-O always had a sly comment whenever Remy walked by. When he got into the car that was waiting for him, he called Brooke back to understand what had happened over the last couple of hours while he slept. Are you on your way? Yes. What the hell is going on? This is insane. 
There's no way we can get this done in six hours. No bill has ever passed that quickly in the history of the country. Well, that's not entirely true. The declaration of war on Japan after the attack on Pearl Harbor was passed by Congress in just an hour or two. Remy was always impressed by Brooks' deep knowledge in the history of American politics. Sure, but this can't be that serious. Apparently it is, Remy. Get to the hill. I'll tell you everything. Remy's head was spinning from their conversation. He had not noticed that the suburban he was in was driving at more than 75 miles an hour on local D.C. streets and had not stopped at a single traffic light since leaving his apartment. Most residents of Washington, D.C. never get to drive more than 35 miles per hour in the district, maybe 45 miles per hour if they're really looking to accumulate speeding tickets from the hundreds of traffic cameras mounted at just about every intersection. Remy had not noticed the sirens either. He looked up from his phone and saw two police escorts ahead and two chase cars following closely behind. This must be pretty important, he thought to himself. I don't know if I should post a selfie on social media so that all my friends can see I'm rolling down D.C. streets with a full motorcade escort, or if I should be concerned that the speaker needs me this urgently to finish writing up an emergency bill. The motorcade came to a screeching halt at the eastern entrance of the Capitol building. Remy was whisked in by Brooke, who was waiting for him at the entrance. Watching Remy step down from the motorcade gave her goosebumps. As she looked on, she thought that there was something oddly precognitive about this scene. I hate that he is so hot, and all that I get is to work with him. He looks so powerful, surrounded by the Secret Service. She wondered if Remy had any inkling that she could not get him out of her mind when she went home every night. Two years older than Remy, Brooke never allowed herself to obsess over any love interest. But she had managed to let herself go crazy about Remy, against her better judgment. She hated that she was so drawn to him, but couldn't do anything about it. Crossing into the main atrium of the Capitol building, Remy called out as they ran down the halls to their working chamber, "'I am still a little puzzled about all this.' "'Yep, but the President called his cabinet two hours ago,' Brooke managed to say between heavy breaths." Everything's expedited. This is happening right now. We've got a few changes to make, and then this baby is being signed into law. Every time Remy walked into the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, he gazed upward and marveled at the fresco of the apotheosis of Washington that looked down on the floor through the oculus of the dome. He would often slowly wander further past the Speaker's office to the statuary hall to soak in the rich history of the nation. But today, as they raced toward the southern wing of the Capitol building, he did not so much as glance toward the majestic pillars that lined the perimeter of the old hall of the house. "'Why such urgency all of a sudden?' Remy asked. "'No idea. That's above my pay grade. All I can tell you is that when the Speaker came in at 9 a.m. after meeting with POTUS, he had a look on his face.' "'What look?' "'You'll see.' And he did." Remy marched into one of the larger conference rooms adjacent to the House chamber, and in the middle of the room was the Speaker of the House barking out orders looking completely ashen and frazzled. Remy had never seen the Speaker this out of sorts. He looked like he had not shaved in a week, his shirt was untucked and creased, his tie was hanging out of his side pocket, and he was frothing at the mouth, literally. "'Remy, where the hell have you been?' More of a statement of disgust than a question. Speaker Davidson was incensed. We have less than six hours to get this thing done and put it in front of the Senate and Congress. 
The vote is tonight, and the president is breathing down my neck. Remy remained smart and poised amidst the chaos. He was able to rapidly assess what was left to be completed and how to address those gaps quickly. Meanwhile, most of the other staffers were running around in hysterics without any particular focus. Remy naturally stepped into the leadership role and directed the urgent effort seamlessly. Despite the pandemonium, the speaker recognized his quality and breathed a sigh of relief that Remy was running point and helping keep things organized and focused. The group continued to work feverishly, and as the six o'clock hour approached, it looked like, against all odds, they would have a bill they could present to both houses. Typically, for an 8 p.m. vote, the members of Congress and senators would need to congregate at least two hours before so they could, at a minimum, glance at the new bill before they voted it into law. But it was now just after 6.30 p.m., and there wasn't a single senator or congressman in sight. As Remy looked around, he noticed that even the Speaker of the House was nowhere to be found. Brooke, where the hell is everyone? Isn't this vote happening, like, right now? I have no idea. I've been so focused on getting this done. They must be next door. I'll go look. Remy offered to go to the chamber next door to see if he could find the Speaker or any other lawmakers. He was surprised to find it completely empty. As he ran back to the working chamber, he heard one of the Capitol Guards screaming orders to Brooke, I need you and Remy to bring the copies of the bill immediately and follow me right away. We have to go now. Remy was a little startled by how hysterical the guard was. As he approached, he put his arm on the guard's shoulder to ask him what was going on. The guard whirled around, swiftly pulled out his service weapon, and pointed it right between Remy's eyes. Sir, listen to me. I've been asked to retrieve Remy and Brooke and evacuate the building in the next three minutes. You need to get out of the way or I'll be forced to take lethal action. Calm down. I am Remy. Please, what's going on? You have to come with me now, sir. Brooke had already gathered up the latest prints of the bill and was racing toward Remy and the guard. The three ran out of the chamber, leaving everyone else behind, completely bewildered and unsure of what to do next. The guard guided them down a winding stairwell that ran along the side wall of the house chamber. Very few people got to see this side of the Capitol building. The stairs continued to descend further, and Remy guessed that they were two floors under the Capitol building. After a few more harrowing seconds descending the winding stairwell, they arrived at a landing. The guard sprinted ahead of them, down one of the halls. Brooke and Remy exchanged a puzzled look, realizing that they had no choice but to follow as closely as they could. A few hundred yards later, the guard opened a large steel door that led to a set of tracks. Stand here. The train will be here momentarily. The Capitol has a small underground subway line that connects the main building with the House and Senate buildings. It's a quick way for staffers to get from one building to the next without having to cross the streets overhead. The Capitol train will take you right to Union Station. Someone is waiting for you there. They will explain. Remy was about to insist on more information from the guard when the train arrived. The guard quickly shoved them through the entryway and pushed a button on the side door to get the train moving. Four minutes later, the train came to a halt, and when the doors opened, a man in an odd-looking light blue uniform stepped out and beckoned them to follow him down a hall concealed behind a metal gate. Once again, Remy and Brooke found themselves running through a dimly lit passageway 
several floors underneath Washington, D.C. This was not how Remy expected his day to unfold. As they ran, Remy could not contain himself and shouted out, Can you please tell me what's going on? The emergency government continuation protocol has been invoked by the president. We gathered as many members of both houses as we could get to in short notice, and they're now on a high-speed train right down this tunnel on their way to a rendezvous with the president at the Greenbrier Bunker in West Virginia. As soon as you two are on board, the train will depart. I apologize for the haste, but we're almost out of time. Government continuation protocol? Why are we worried about continuation of government? Remy panted as he blurted out the questions. He was winded, but he and Brooke had to keep up with a new subterranean guide. "'You will be briefed as soon as you get on the train. For now, the priority is to get you and all essential members of the government to a safe location within the next three hours.' The statement took a few seconds to sink in for both Remy and Brooke. Three hours? Why three hours? What's going to happen in three hours?' But there was no time for that thought to become an audible question. They maneuvered around a bend and stopped right in front of a short train with only two cars and a sleek-looking high-speed engine at the front. Remy and Brooke were practically kicked through the open door of one of the cars, and within thirty seconds they were in motion, rapidly accelerating out of the city. Remy had been on the Acela train that ran from Washington, D.C., north to New York and Boston. He would always look at his mobile GPS app while riding the train to see how fast they were traveling, and it usually topped out at around 125 miles an hour. Remy could not get to his iPhone to check how fast they were going, but from the speed at which the surroundings were whipping past, he guessed they must be doing at least 250 to 300 miles per hour. As they settled into their seats, Remy looked around to see who else was on the train. He recognized a few faces of congressmen he had interacted with over the last few weeks. They all huddled in hushed conversations and looked gravely concerned about what was happening. A familiar voice rang out from behind them. "'Everyone has laughed at the United States because we don't have a bullet train in the most advanced country in the world, when countries like Japan and Germany have had them for years.' Speaker Davidson walked up to them with his gavel in his hand. Well, welcome to our very own high-speed train prototype. It's been quietly in test mode over the last year on this route from D.C. to the bunker at Greenbrier. The Speaker of the House sensed Remy's bewilderment. I know it's a lot to take in. The short version is that something pretty bad's about to happen, and we must ensure continuity of government. We need to make sure that all our members of Congress and our senators are safe and that FEMA is equipped to manage the aftermath. We must get this bill passed in the next hour. The very fate of our country depends on it. Let's stay focused on our mission. I'll answer all your questions later. The speaker looked over at Brooke and asked if she had copies of the bill. I brought everything with me as you asked, sir. Come with me, he said as he quickly walked toward the adjacent car. Although the president can exercise executive privilege and do what needs to be done during a national emergency, he wants to avoid the appearance of constitutional dictatorship. So he asked me to gather as many of the lawmakers as we could find in the Capitol at a moment's notice and take a vote en route to Greenbrier. Brooke and Remy kept pace with the speaker as they walked through the vestibule adjoining the two cars. This car has the senators we could pull in on time, 28 in total. 
They'll vote on the bill first. The next car has some of our congressmen and women. We were able to assemble sixty of them. They'll vote immediately after. When we get to the bunker, I'll hand the bill to the president. He'll sign it into law. And then, God help us all. The speaker had a look of sadness and resignation on his face, and Remy had to muster up all his strength to stop himself from asking the hundreds of questions that raced through his mind. He knew that the immediate focus had to be on getting the Senate and House to vote, albeit moving at three hundred miles per hour through the backwoods of Virginia. Remy would later look back at this moment and think it fitting that the very last bill to be passed by the Congress of the United States was passed in Virginia, only a few hundred miles away from where the Constitution of the United States and the very form of government that shaped the country was birthed. As the train crossed the West Virginia border, snaking its way through the Appalachian Mountain Range, the FEMA bill, introduced by the Speaker of the House, passed unanimously in both the Senate and the House. 7.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time Several hundred miles north, life in New York City was going on as usual. Thick summer humidity snarled traffic jams, broken dreams, and rich hedge fund managers getting richer. Everyone was oblivious of the goings-on in Washington, D.C. over the past few hours. New York was planning a major celebration from the top of one World Trade Center on the anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. In four weeks, the President of the United States was scheduled for a special appearance on the rooftop, which would be followed by an extravagant fireworks show at dusk. A hundred miles east, on the Atlantic, a cargo ship was making its way to Europe after leaving the Port of Baltimore earlier in the day. As it crossed the continental shelf of the U.S., 500 feet below the ship's hull, a major stress point that had not moved in thousands of years cracked open and created a catastrophic cascade of events that would begin in New York and radiate north towards Boston and the New England states and south toward Washington, D.C. The crew preparing the temporary celebration platform on the 105th floor of One World Trade Center was the first to notice the movement. Initially, it felt like there was an explosion at the base of the building that caused the entire building to bump up a foot. As the crew frightfully looked east over the ocean, they were the first to see what appeared to be ripples of water rapidly radiating eastward on the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. From the vantage point of the cargo ship far in the distance, the ripples were 50-foot-high waves that appeared out of nowhere, completely ravaging the ship. Less than a minute later, one World Trade Center, along with every other building in New York City, began to shake violently. Stone facades, windows, and walls collapsed as the shaking intensified. One hundred floors down, many of the major New York avenues and streets caved into the subway tunnel system beneath. In a matter of seconds, Park Avenue, Broadway, Madison, Wall Street, and Fifth Avenue were at the lowest level of the tunnels below. Tens of thousands of people were trapped or killed instantly. Older buildings that were not engineered to withstand the violent shock of the earthquake collapsed within seconds, taking thousands of lives with them as they crumbled to the ground. The shockwave traveled north and south faster than the speed of sound, 
Boston suffered the same fate as New York, with streets falling into the tunnels beneath the city and buildings disintegrating from the relentless shaking. The destruction was beyond comprehension. Further south, Philadelphia and Baltimore were decimated. In Washington, D.C., iconic structures like the Washington Monument and the Capitol Building were only able to withstand 30 seconds of shaking before they were toppled. In less than a minute, hundreds of thousands of people from Boston, New York, and south of Washington were killed or trapped underneath the rubble. The violent tremors lasted 60 seconds. As geologists evaluated the damage and communicated to news outlets, their assessment was that the East Coast had experienced a devastating 9.9 earthquake, the largest in recorded history. In West Virginia, Speaker Davidson shook hands with Brooke and Remy as the train slowed down as it approached Greenbrier. Thanks for helping get this done. We couldn't have done it without all your efforts, and... The speaker stopped mid-sentence and turned a bewildered glance toward the front of the car. Remy felt the train lurch violently sideways and instinctively gripped the seat in front of him for protection. Moments later, the entire train was airborne. He reached out to Brooke to try and protect her, but the force of the blow to his head as he hit the roof of the train was too severe. Remy's world instantly went black. The engine at the front of the train slammed into a rock face and exploded on impact. The first car with the United States senators plunged into a deep rocky ravine. Mercifully, no one felt the impact. Death came before they had a chance to process what was happening. The trailing car carrying the congressman was tossed to the opposite side of the tracks where a thick grove of trees cushioned some of the impact. After slicing through a hundred feet of woodland, the car came to rest partially submerged in a lagoon. Any congressman in the front of the car that did not get killed by the impact were trapped underwater and died within one or two minutes. The tail end of the car was spared, but the violent crash was more than most people's bodies could handle. When Remy came to, he was surrounded by smoke and the grisly sight of partially mutilated bodies and mangled body parts. Remy was not sure how long he had been unconscious, but as he regained his bearings, he tried to call out to see if anyone else in the car was still alive. He only heard three or four voices call back. Two of them were trapped in the carnage. Fortunately, Remy was able to free himself and climb out of the wreckage, other than the stinging pain from the impact on the left side of his torso and bleeding from his temple, he seemed mostly intact. He had no idea what had happened. His first thought was that it was a terrorist attack. Remy collected himself and begun the arduous task of trying to rescue anyone who survived the crash. He managed to extract only two members of Congress from the wreckage. He searched everywhere, but to his dismay, it appeared that Brooke had not made it. His heart ached at the thought of her dead. He called out for the Speaker of the House, but he too did not respond. A few minutes later, Remy found his disfigured body crushed between two seats. His lifeless hands still clutched the leather messenger bag containing the new bill. Looking away, Remy pried the bag out of the Speaker's deathly grip and swung the strap across his shoulder. We must get the bill to the president for signature, one of the surviving congressmen said between labored breaths. He must sign it immediately. The changes have begun. The changes? What goddamn changes? 
With everything that was happening, Remy could not shake the feeling that he was still missing a major piece of the puzzle. He first thought it was a targeted terrorist hit on the U.S. government. But as he thought back to the new bill that was rushed through Congress, the continuity of government measure invoked by the president, and now the derailment, Remy became increasingly concerned that there may be something bigger at play. But no one had been willing to tell him anything. As Remy pressed for more details, the congressman's eyes rolled into the back of his head. Remy tried desperately to resuscitate him. He checked frantically for a pulse, but could not feel one. The second congressman who Remy rescued spoke to him desperately. We must get to the president right away. We're not at liberty to talk about what's happening, but I'm sure the president will get you up to speed when he rendezvous. He is planning on addressing the nation tonight from the bunker. The congressman's stubbornness was infuriating, but Remy understood the necessity for information hierarchy during times of national distress. And although he did not yet appreciate the magnitude of what was happening, instinctively, this felt like one of those times. Remy and the congressman agreed to follow whatever was left of the train tracks the short distance toward Greenbrier to get to the president. The Greenbrier bunker is adjacent to Greenbrier Resort. When it was built, the train tracks were laid so that any train coming from Washington could stop right at the steps of the resort. They approached what looked like a military post along the twisted remains of the train track. They called out for help with the little energy they had left and were quickly rescued by the Marines at the post. "'Where's the rest of your party, sir?' one of the Marines called out. The congressman groaned from the pain. "'We are it! And the Speaker of the House, sir, didn't make it!' They climbed into a Humvee and drove into the bunker, descending a steep incline where it got noticeably colder rather quickly. As the new guests of the bunker looked at their surroundings in awe, one of the Marines gave them a quick history lesson. "'This bunker was built more than fifty years ago under the Greenbrier Resort. The resort was built another fifty years before that. It has a fascinating century-old history of its own. It has gone bankrupt, changed owners several times, and more recently come back into prominence. Unfortunately, the resort did not fare too well in the earthquake, as you saw.' What you see around you right now took tens of millions of dollars to construct underground. The facility can accommodate more than a thousand people, has a fully functional hospital, TV broadcast capability, and a water treatment facility. It's built to withstand any natural or man-made disaster. For more than 30 years, the American people did not know that this bunker existed. It was situated here because of its proximity to the nation's capital, to allow for continuity of government if the situation ever arose. Unfortunately, twenty or thirty years ago, a major newspaper did an expose on the bunker, and the government was forced to decommission it from use. Remy recalled reading about the uproar caused by an investigative journalist from the Washington Post wrote an article titled The Ultimate Congressional Hideaway in 1992, uncovering the true nature of the facility. The newspaper got significant blowback from government officials because the disclosure compromised national security. The site was declassified immediately after. The military has maintained a small presence here since then in the event that it is required in an unexpected national emergency. What happened today is exactly why we remained behind and kept the facility functional. 
We just don't have the staff levels, supplies, and resource capabilities that we did 30 years ago. As they approached the bottom of the incline, a large steel door opened up to a well-lit parking lot. They climbed out of the Humvee and headed into the war room, the nerve center of the bunker, where the president sat alone with his chief of staff. They had just wrapped up a phone call and looked terribly grim. Remy handed the president the new bill and informed him that both the Senate and House had voted to approve it. All signatures were duly executed, but the document was in pretty bad shape after the tragic train accident. Without saying a word, the president took the bill, signed it, and passed it quietly to his chief of staff. He let out a loud sigh of relief, looked at Remy, and said, "'Thank you. You have just saved the United States from vanishing from history forever.'" Remy felt he had earned the right to know what was going on. He asked firmly, "'Mr. President, no one has told me what is happening and why the continuity of government protocol had to be invoked. Respectfully, sir, what caused the train accident? What is going on? I need to know. You're right, and I apologize that we've had to be somewhat guarded with information. I have gone so far as to ask that no additional resources be sent to our location. As long as no one knows we're here, we are secure. I have asked all military and essential personnel to be on the ready. The country is going to need all the help it can get in the coming days. What you experienced on the train was the result of a magnitude 9.9 .9 earthquake that hit the eastern seaboard. Remy understood that earthquakes typically happened along major fault lines and knew a little bit about geology of the East Coast. Excuse me, we never get any major earthquakes on the East Coast, Mr. President. That's impossible. I am afraid not. The earthquake was caused by a hundred-mile-long massive fissure that ruptured just east of New York City. And things are about to get a whole lot worse. The entire eastern seaboard east of the Appalachian Mountains is sinking. Luckily, this bunker is on the western side of the Appalachian Mountains, so we should be safe. What do you mean the entire eastern seaboard is sinking? Remy asked incredulously. The North American Craton has been activated and has shifted east by a few hundred miles. We don't understand how or why. The shift has caused the coastal plain to buckle and subduct under the pressure, and it's pulling the whole East Coast down with it. I'm afraid that Washington, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston will be at the bottom of the Atlantic in less than two hours. Remy immediately thought about Nikki. His heart sunk in grief as he realized that she would not make it, and there was nothing he could do about it. Mr. President, is there anything we can do? Can we get some people out? Please, sir, there are people I love who live in Washington and along the East Coast. Friends, classmates. The president lowered his gaze in regret and despair, quiet tears brimming his eyes. I'm afraid it's too late, son. There is absolutely nothing we can do. Remy, now standing up, glared at the president, who sat forlorn with his elbows on the table and his face in his palms. He implored the president, didn't we know this was going to happen? We could have warned everyone. The president shook his head. He quietly added, We just found out a few hours ago when U.S. Coast Guard buoys in the Atlantic started to register a strange anomaly on the ocean floor. We had no time to get all our members of Congress, our families, or our colleagues and friends out in time. I'm still trying to track down my wife and children.
And here's a special behind-the-scenes look with the author K.M. Lewis. Connect with the author at 13thguardian.com. While the core group of characters in the 13th Guardian come from very different socializations, those differences are what will make them so well-suited to play such consequential roles as their new reality unfolds. Eli, for instance, was raised poor on a farm with little by way of resources and access. Talk about being at the right place at the right time. Although he's extremely well-studied on all things religion and has a magnetism about him that his boss quickly keys in on, truth be told, luck has a lot to do with him landing his coveted apprenticeship at the Vatican. In stark contrast, and halfway around the world, there's Remy, who grew up in privilege and has access to the power brokers in Washington thanks to his parents. But even with that, like Eli, fate thrusts him into the most unlikely of circumstances. Remy finds himself personally responsible for the safekeeping of the very last piece of legislation to be passed by the U.S. Congress. Things get really dramatic as Remy scrambles through the labyrinth of tunnels and chambers directly beneath the U.S. Capitol and to the secret bunker in Greenbrier. This scene underscores the depth of the mystery and conspiracy that he suddenly becomes aware of. Remember, before his first encounter with POTUS, Remy has been mostly oblivious to what is happening around him. As unexpected events continue to happen, he begins to suspect that something much bigger is at play and becomes increasingly frustrated that no one is willing to provide answers. His reaction when the president finally reveals the gravity of the situation is a very human one. That final moment that Remy and the president share is important. I really wanted to explore the human condition and how loss and tragedy impact all of us equally. Here, you have the leader of the free world and a low-level political staffer on the complete opposite end of the spectrum of power and influence, suddenly forced together and connected in a very real way. Both brought to their knees as they grapple with the agony of loss. What begins as a series of seemingly unrelated events shrouded in secrecy culminates in a devastating revelation that leaves Remy and the President equally vulnerable. And the world around them starts to unravel. 